Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 255. My name is Terry Frost and this time I'm doing two movies and I'll tell you why a little bit later. The first one is from 1968, Krakatoa East of Java starring Maximilian Schell, Brian Keith and Sal Minio. And then we move on to 1968 for The Night They Raided Minsky starring Jason Robards, Britt Eklund and Norman Wisdom. So let me get the contact details out of the way and we'll start talking about, well, 1968. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old and it's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how is everybody going? Um, it's still winter here, which is sad. Um, it snowed up in the mountains and it got really cold and there was hail and tempests and we've still got a conservative government, so it's all shit. Um, roll on the warm weather. On the good side of things, I got uh, another video out, which was good about uh was my review of godzilla king of the monsters and i was in favor of it ah uh, well, let's see what else is happening this weekend i'm going to continuum the national science fiction convention here in melbourne and i will catch up with numerous disreputable people of my acquaintance and have a good time sal's got a store where she's selling her craft and we've got some high hopes for her doing really well with that and for the most part it's just going to be hanging out with friends and uh, i am doing one panel on social media etiquette. Now that's going to be interesting because I'm not very good at it. Nonetheless, I do have that experience around election time when all the trolls hit me after I expressed my dismay with the federal election result. So I do have a little bit of perspective on social media etiquette and um, both sides of what happens when something you post goes viral. Now there are things I post uh, friend locked, there are things I post in public as well. And I'm not going to stop doing that. I've just got much better at protecting myself from the slings and arrows of outraged fortunates. So anyway, I'm looking forward to going to continue and always have a good time there. It's at a rotten cold time of the year. So basically what you do is you sit in the bar, you go up and, do some, and watch some panels or be on some panels. Then you head out as fast as you can to a decent Asian restaurant. So that's pretty much the way it goes with these conventions. And it's not a bad way for things to be. So to be honest... My definition of a decent Asian restaurant may have drifted since the trip to Japan. Uh, anyway, what have I been watching? I watched the um, Good Omens, the adaptation of the Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman book. And yeah, it was okay. It was fantastically good. It was all a bit twee and British, really, I suppose. I wasn't really a great fan of it. I'd read the book way, way back in the day. But Christian theology, even when it's being mocked, isn't one of my favourite things, to be honest with you. So I went out and I saw Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and I liked it. It works, the ensemble of humans work, the kaiju work, Godzilla, Mothra, Rodan, King Ghidorah, 
and some lesser kaiju out there beating the fuck out of each other and ruining real estate values. It's, you know, it's all on the packet, so you might as well just go there and enjoy the ride, really. It delivers what you want with a kaiju movie, and that's never a bad thing. Uh, no big surprises. There is a post credit sequence, so if you haven't seen it, sit around to the end of the credits, because there is a post credit sequence, and it'll be horrible for you to miss out on that. Then I watched a rom-com, Always Be My Maybe, which is good. you got to like it when a rom-com mixes food porn with romantic comedy. I like that idea. Uh, there's a lot of representation there, too, because it stars Ali Wong and Randall Park. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you much of the story. Go check it out on Netflix. It's going to be a bit of fun for you. There's a couple of nice twists and turns in the plot line. It makes fun of really, really expensive restaurants in a beautiful way. And I had a lot of fun watching it. And like anything decent, as far as cinema's concerned, it does address some different issues. It actually addresses... Um, socioeconomic diversity, let's say, and differences of lifestyle and what's important to people and which parts can be discarded because they're pretensions. It really does work. And having a rom-com with basically a mostly Asian cast, and, and apart from Asian people of various diverse races, is a good thing. I mean, you know, having that diversity in there and having people you don't necessarily see on the screen is a lot of fun. There's a couple of celebrity cameos that I'm not going to spoil, even though the trailer does spoil them in the best possible way. But, uh, yeah, I liked it. It worked well. It does the usual rom-com arc, but with some interesting diversions on the way. So that's a recommendation from me. Let me see what else I've got on the letterboxed list. I did see a film noir I don't remember seeing before called Somewhere in the Night starring John Hodiak, Nancy Gilt and Lloyd, Lloyd Nolan. It's about a guy who's amnesiac and tries to find out who he is after um, suffering an injury during World War II. He comes back to the hometown and tries to pick up the pieces and work out who he actually is. John Hodiak was an interesting actor, uh, had a slightly distinctive look, died very early of a heart attack like a lot of them did because... They didn't look after themselves, basically. They smoked, they drank. They did exercise, but they smoked and drank a lot, and a lot of them died in their 40s, including John Hodiak. The movie's got that nice black-and-white look with the deep shadows and all of that kind of thing. And I like the title, Somewhere in the Night. It really does kind of work for me as one of the better titles for a film noir. Then I looked up some things on various streaming services, and watch Flower Drum Song, which is a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. It doesn't get a lot of love because it was the first big Hollywood film to have an almost entirely Asian cast. They had Koreans, they had Chinese uh, people, they had Japanese, they had Eurasian people, they had Filipinos, all playing Chinese people. And it was a story, it's a kind of, you know, boy meets girl kind of story. And like always been my maybe, it's set in San Francisco for the most part. Based on a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, there was a little bit of yellow face in the original stage production of the musical, I found out, which is a little bit disturbing. But um, until the Joy Luck Club came out in about 89, it was the only fairly large budget Hollywood movie to have a predominantly Asian cast. We're international productions, but not American-based ones. So yeah, it's important for that point of view. It's got a couple of nice songs in it. Uh, some of the singing is dubbed because it was the 1960s, 1961, I think it came out. And because it was done by Universal rather than MGM, 
it doesn't get grouped in with all of the other Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, which were done by the other studio. And probably because there was a bit of racism around in those days, not that there is these days, of course, it may not have got a lot of love for that reason as well, but I enjoyed it. It's kind of cool. There's some really nice dance sequences in there. There's a bit of singing. There's some nice comedy. Jack Sue does a nice comedic piece as a nightclub owner. So, yeah, I enjoyed that. Then I went totally lowbrow. I went crazily and utterly and entirely down market and watched Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, which is incredibly low budget, tits and ass science fiction-y thing, which doesn't have anybody you've really ever seen in it, but it does have a lot of women taking their... Oh, Brink Stevens is in it. She's probably the only person you'd know the name of in the whole movie. It was late at night. I wasn't sleepy yet. So I put on Tubi, which is a streaming, free streaming service we have here in Australia, and I watched Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. It's one of those VHS-era movies that you would have picked up because you needed it. You had four movies. You needed to get the five for $10, so you went and found just any movie you could in the science fiction section. It was probably Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. It's definitely got that kind of a vibe about it. Would I recommend it? No, probably not. Also saw the first episode of the Swamp Thing TV series that uh, DC has let out of the bag, and it's kind of good. There's a lot of body horror in it. There's a lot of swearing, which I always appreciate because swearing is my first language. And, uh, yeah, the special effects are very well done, and the characters are kind of interesting. Uh, They have uh, Virginia Madsen's in it and Will Patton and a few other people you might recognise and yeah uh check it out and let me know what you think because i'm staying with this one for at least a few episodes just to see how it goes because it's uh being released on a weekly basis which is so old school these days and doesn't give you the opportunity to binge which is my favorite way of consuming episodic media these days is to sit down get the popcorn out grab an espresso and maybe if it's later in the night a shot glass of whiskey and binges TV series and it would be nice to do that one but if it's coming out weekly I'll, I'll be good and I'll kind of wait for it to come out weekly and I'll watch it I think I'm going to go the distance on this one unless it totally jumps the shark very early on there are some plot threads uh, laid out in the first episode which kind of may be interesting And there's a really good sense of place about the swamp at a place called Murray, Louisiana, which is fictional. And I kind of, yeah, I I like the fact that they did set it up as one of the characters is the community around this swamp. And that worked for me. So I probably should tell you why I picked the two movies I'm going to talk about in this particular podcast. Krakatoa, East of Java, and The Night They Raided Minsky's. And the reason's pretty simple when you think about it. They are the two films that are on movie marquees in the trailer for Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There are two other movies, but they're softcore porn movies. I did find copies of them, but I didn't find anything interesting to say about them. They make Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity look like the bandwagon. And the reason I didn't mention them is I only skimmed them and found that out. But anyway, here is some audio from Krakatoa, East of Java. Then I'm going to tell you why I found it kind of interesting. And because I couldn't find the trailer, I'm going to play you the theme song from that particular forgotten movie. (laughs) 
That song is 2 minutes and 33 seconds, and yet it seems to go on forever. It's seriously bad, isn't it, really? Um, Unlike the movie, the movie actually I enjoyed, and the movie, even though it is slightly long, didn't seem to go on forever. Much to its credit, um, I don't think it's a fantastically good film, but I think it definitely does what it sets out to do, which is to tell a story around the explosion of Krakatoa in 1883. And by the way, yes, I do know the Krakatoa is actually west of Java rather than east of Java. The movie makers found this out after they'd done the movie and produced all the production, all the publicity material and couldn't be stuff changing at all. It's easy to do these days. You just kind of go in and Photoshop something and then put a bit of After Effects over the title. But no, these guys, much harder to do in those days, so they didn't bother. In many ways, it's a really weird movie in that the production values are really high for the time, particularly given the fact that they were using um, Cinerama, which is a very wide screen. And I'll talk more about that in a little while. But the they got a director who was mostly known for doing television, a guy called Bernard Kowalski. The script was mostly written by a blacklisted writer called Bernard Gordon, who'd done a number of scripts for the producer previously that producer being Philip Jordan. The other producer is a guy called William R. Foreman, and more about him later as well. But I probably should do the plot of the movie. We know Krakatoa, the volcano, blows up. That's the first thing you know that. But I'll give you the one from IMD because it's pretty succinct. In 1883, ship captain Hansen, played by Maximilian Schell, plans a shipwreck salvage mission 
in the Dutch East Indies to retrieve a cargo of pearls. But an unexpected volcano eruption and a state-ordered transport of convicts upsets his plan. And that's pretty much it. The Captain's Play by Maximilian Schell. And it wasn't going to be his last disaster movie either because he was in both The Black Hole and Deep Impact in later years. The movie's filled up with a lot of TV actors of the time, which is kind of interesting. Looks like they were trying to save money on the actors so they could spend it on the set design and the special effects. So we've got Diane Baker playing a woman called Laura who um, who had an extramarital affair with the captain in Batavia and is going travelling to an orphanage on one of the islands to pick up her child. An Englishman called Rigby, played by John Layton, who designed and owns the diving ball they're going to use to spot the pearls before they send down guys in diving suits to retrieve them. They're a father and son pair of balloonists. Giovanni Borghese and his son, uh, Leon Cavallo, played by Rosanna Brasi, who was in South Pacific, and Sal Minio, of course, who was in Rebel Without a Cause. There's a guy called Harry Connolly, played by Brian Keith, a deep-sea diver who goes down in the diving suits. His mistress, Charlie, played by Barbara Worley, who's a professional um, soprano. And forward female Japanese pearl divers who were basically there for no plot reason apart from eye candy. So the captain and this miscellaneous crew are about to leave for the mission when the local harbour master, played by an actor I really like, Niall McGuinness, who was the bad guy in Curse of the Demon. But he comes up to them and says, you've got to take these prisoners to this island. It's all part of the agreements we have with the shipping around here. And you've got to take a whole bunch of guys in chains to these islands. So, you know, the things get complicated and we fill out the cast. One of the prisoners is a guy called Danzig, played by J.D. Cannon, who was the cop, in one of the cops in McLeod, amongst other things in TV. There's a lot of TV people here. There are a lot of complications and inter- personal interactions and things like that. Harry, the deep-sea diver, played by Brian Keith, has ruined lungs. He's been down too long and his lungs are ruined. And so he has an addiction to opium in the form of laudanum. So he's taking swigs of that and basically has a, he's a junkie. And we get the mandatory scenes of him under the influence of laudanum. We get the calm, cold turkey scene where they hang him in a packing crate from a boom arm off the side of the ship until he gets his shit together, which is probably not one of the recommended ways of dealing with an opium addiction, but it ultimately kind of works, but it may well have impair his judgment as the plot goes on, and I'm not going to spoil that for you. Brian Keith, though, is very good in the role. I've got to give him that. He gives it everything he's got, and he was a criminally underrated actor. If you look at him in things like Man with a Golden Arm and a bunch of other things he did, the guy had crazy acting chops. He was plausible. He was willing to really commit to a role. And in this one, he's much better in the role than the movie deserves. Salminia doesn't get much to do. Rosanna Brassi doesn't get much to do. Barbara Worley, the woman playing Harry's girlfriend, Charlie, is an interesting actor. She was an actor and a singer. She's about 40 at the time this movie was made. And the unfortunate thing for her, I mean, she had acting chops. She's quite a, a lovely woman and does her job well. But the reason she got the job is she was the mistress of one... William R. Foreman, the guy who was the producer and who also 
owned the Cinerama Dome in Los Angeles, that big dome which you see in the trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. William R. Foreman owned it. And it's unfortunate that Barbara Worley is kind of jammed in with not too much dramatic purpose apart from being the support for Harry Connolly. And, you know, I'm kind of, I feel sorry for her in a weird way that because she was approaching 40 and because she was kind of middling talented, not untalented and, and quite charming in the role, but getting in the role because your boyfriend happens to own the Cinerama Theatre and be one of the producers of the movie must have been difficult for her as well because, you know, you don't want to um, think you didn't get the job from your from your own actions and from your own talent. And when you do get the job, you don't want to screw it up because that's letting everybody else down. It's one of those things that probably still happens to a certain extent in the film industry both ways, we are male and female, I suppose, these days. But I kind of feel a lot of sympathy for Barbara Worley as an actor, and I kind of like her character of Charlie in this one. But being the girlfriend of the producer, maybe not the best way to go about your career. The movie was filmed in Cinecittà Studios in Rome, and they kind of filmed it at just the right time to film this kind of a disaster movie. Because at the time, near Cinecittà, um, the Italians were building a subway system. And there's not a necessary connection between that, but I'll explain it. There was a shit ton of spare dirt around because they were digging up subways. And Eugene Lowry, the guy who did the special effects work for Krakatoa, east of Java, got a lot of the dirt and built this enormous mound, 70 foot tall, to be the volcano for the big climactic scene of Krakatoa, east of Java. They made a model that was enormous and they got it done very cheaply because the Italian subway builders didn't want the dirt. Cinecittà got it. They built an enormous volcano. I've seen a lot of movies with volcanoes in them, particularly from this era and earlier. And for the most part, they're pretty shit. They really don't look like volcanoes they don't act like volcanoes they don't erupt like volcanoes there's usually there's some stock footage of a real volcano so, you know somebody goes to hawaii and does a little bit of kilauea work comes back and then suddenly you've got a whole bunch of red dyed porridge pouring down a fake slope doesn't happen like that in krakatoa east of java the movie was nominated for an academy award for best special effects and they lost out to the forgotten space movie Marooned. But the volcano in this is really great. I love it. You first hear it like this enormous steam kettle whistle of air escaping from somewhere. They kind of went back to the historical records. And days before the Krakatoa eruption in eighteen eighty three, there was an enormous sound like a steam kettle which was definitely loud. And they evoked that quite effectively in the movie. They start seeing smoke in the distance. They've got to do a couple of rescues on a couple of islands to get the orphans off. And they realise that things are getting worse and worse. So they send up the balloon to take a look at the volcano, as you do. That kind of doesn't go well because the eruption starts while the balloon's up there. And Rosanna Brasi and um, Sal Minio 
have to swim for it, basically, as their, um, I think it may well even be a hydrogen balloon blows up. Now, there's a lot of human drama here, and it's kind of, in a sense, presages a lot of the disaster movies that happen afterwards, and some that happened before. There was that movie around this, you know, about five years before this, Devil at Four O'Clock, with Spencer Tracy and Frank Sinatra in it. And another one with a volcanic eruption in there. Not done as well as this one. And also, this one, they had to use the three-camera process for CinemaScope, which led to some problems and complications. I'm going to tell you what they are right now. To do the volcanic eruption, right, you've got to have some explosives in there. You've got to throw lots of dirt and fire into the sky and all that kind of thing as a special effects person. Problem is that when you do that, because the volcano you build, even if it is 70 feet tall, is still much, much smaller than a real volcano. So basically you've got to um you've got to overcrank the cameras. You've got to put more than twenty-four frames a second through the aperture so that all of the um explosions are in slow motion. So it gives you that idea that it's at a greater distance and a greater height. Problem is the Cinerama cameras were finicky little fuckers. The, the technology was all mechanical and electrical, and they overheated very easily when you ran them at 70 frames a second. And when they overheated, they broke down, and they're very expensive items. There may have been some spare parts, but if something breaks down you don't have a spare part for, you've got to send away to Los Angeles to get it back to Chinachita Studios in Italy. So there were immense difficulties there. They then had to use travelling mats and other tricks when there were people in the same scenes as model shots in the background and the foreground. There was a lot of special effects work to do in this movie. In fact, the movie was all about the special effects. It was a Cinerama picture in Cinemascope, incredibly wide um, screen. And they knew the special effects shots they wanted. They knew the disaster shots they wanted. So in a reverse of the usual process, they had the shots they wanted. They go, okay, you've got to have the volcano exploding. You've got to have this, this, and this. And once they knew which special effects shots they wanted to do, they built the plot around it. Half the time, they were only a couple of days ahead of production as far as writing the script was concerned. And particularly in a day before you had all of these wonderful spreadsheets to map this shit out, it was no small logistical thing to do that. It was incredibly difficult. Not only do you have to get the script done, you've then got to have somebody mimeograph the pages to give them to the actors, give them time to memorise them, all that kind of thing. Logistical nightmare, this movie all the way around. But having said that, the volcanic eruption kicks ass. The um, explosions, the rocks being thrown around, the um, effects of on the um, sets, that's the miniatures of the, of the ship, which are kind of effective, even though you can't see any people on the decks or inside the ship when the special effects are working. They, they just did state-of-the-art for 1968. There are lava bombs bombarding the boat and bombarding the ocean around them. There's smoke, there's fire. Basically, it, it all comes together really effectively. And I was a little surprised by that because I thought, I'm going to do this movie because it's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I'm not expecting much of the special effects. And it rewarded me. It really did give an effective life to this volcano. Uh, these days, it's a lot easier to do volcanic eruptions. Take a look at Rodan emerging from the volcano on the Mexican island in Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and you'll see what I mean. 
you get everything there. You get the fire, you get the rocks coming out, you get the pyroclastic flows of um, 900-degree ash coming down the mountainside. You get the whole lot. But in those days, it was all physical effects. It was all in camera, apart from the travelling mats and the miniatures. But this movie does it crazily effectively. It works really well as a disaster movie. It doesn't particularly work well as a human drama, even though actors like Brian Keith are giving it their best chops. I don't think uh, other actors were particularly doing so, but Brian Keith really was, for me, the most valuable player in this movie. And I'd probably say that the theme song was the least valuable player because I'm not listening to that again. It's just so banal and obvious and kind of borderline racist too. But just to kind of summarise on Krakatoa East of Java, it's worth watching. It's not um, bad in, in the usual sense. It's very kind of haphazard because they did have production problems. Philip Jordan left as a producer and writer and they rewrote a whole bunch of stuff. Some people wanted to make it kid-friendly. Some people wanted to make it adult. So there's a striptease scene with Charlie trying to get Harry um, into bed by doing a striptease and a song and dance in the bedroom. There's a whole bunch of different stuff which kind of makes you wonder who the audience was for this film. And to be honest with you, the filmmakers just simply didn't know. Some of them wanted to make it one way. Some of them wanted to make it another. So you've got a melange of kid-friendly stuff with little kids. You've also got more adult stuff with the drug addiction and the adultery and a whole bunch of other things like that. It is what we call in this brown, unpleasant land a dog's breakfast. But it's got a fantastic explosion at the end. Um, Some people die, some people live. The boat has to outrun a tidal wave, which isn't done the way tsunamis are really done in real life, but they never were done in movies accurately before people had video cameras at resorts around Asia during the big 2004 tsunami. But, um, yeah, it's it's worth checking out. It, it is interesting. It's very much of its time. And the fact that uh, Tarantino was aware of it and put it into the movie had um, the attraction that was happening at the Cinerama Dome in 1969 when his movie is set was a really interesting deep cut and brought the movie to my attention. So I'm going to take a break now. I want to get back and going to talk about The Night They Raided Minsky's directed by William Friedkin, who later went on to Better Things, and starring Jason Robards, Norman Wisdom, Britt Eklund, Harry Andrews turns up in it, Denholm Elliott turns up in it, and uh, Bert Lahr, a whole bunch of other people. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? You're about to see some previews of a movie, The Night They Raided Minsky's. It takes place in the year 1925. It is the story of burlesque as it was then. A healthy, wholesome, honest, all-American form of entertainment. Take ten terrific girls, but only nine costumes, and you're talking of something grand. Me, 
and the girl with the million dollar smile. Shoppy Drysdale, our petite little ingenue with those two twinkling eyes. We know you are a real sophisticated audience, and this is some mature story. In 1925, there was this real religious girl who ran away from home and her righteously uptight father. She headed for New York to begin her career in show business. She danced stories from the Bible to Offenbach's Baccaro. It was there that she met this truly terrible guy who instantly decided to make her a star. Tonight at the Midnight Show, you're dancing. And so, thanks to this truly terrible guy and her righteously uptight father, this real religious girl accidentally invented the strip tease. Okay, so The Night They Were Raided Minsky is a 1968 comedy which is supposed to be a fictional account of the invention of striptease at Minsky's Burlesque in 1925. It was based on a novel by Roland Barber published in 1960. It stars Jason Robards as Raymond Payne who is the top banana in a comedy act in vaudeville along with his sidekick Chick Williams played by Norman Wisdom, the English comedian. Brett Eklund plays Rachel Shippendaffel, who is an Amish girl who decides to go to New York to become a dancer and ends up in Minsky's. She dances badly to illustrate biblical verses, which shows you how out of touch she is with what people want. And so she goes to Minsky's burlesque and tries to get a job there. There are a bunch of other actors in there as well. There's Forrest Tucker as Trim Houlihan, who's a gangster. Harry Andrews. In A Big Chin Beard, the English actor Harry Andrews plays her father. Joseph Wiseman plays Louis Minsky, who owns Minsky's Burlesque. Uh, Billy Minsky is played by his son, is played by Elliot Gould. Denholm Elliot plays a guy called Vance Fowler, who is the League of Decency guy who checks out the burlesques and is quite oily in his own way. And Bert Lahr plays an old vaudevillian called Professor Spatz, Bert Lahr from Wizard of Oz, in his last film role. So this is the story of the last days of Minsky's burlesque and how Rachel, played by Brett Eklund, kind of, sort of, invents striptease. And this was considered entertainment in the day. Here's the thing with The Night They Raided Minsky's. I didn't like it very much, I'll be honest with you. I think it's nowhere near William Friedkin's best movie and it may well be his worst. It was one of his very early films. And I'll give you some reasons why I think it's a pretty bad movie. Uh, Jason Robard's character, Raymond Payne, is a coxman. He's got this terrifically hypnotic line of patter to seduce women with. 
and he's very successful with it. And Robards is good in the role. Gives us a very stagey performance in it, but it's kind of apt given that he's a vaudevillian. And he's good in it. I mean, he's probably the most valuable player in the movie. He really does uh, give his all. Problem is that he's not really the viewpoint character because his character is a piece of shit. Cock blocks his friend uh, Chick, played by Norman Wisdom. He's um, unscrupulous and, and not a very good person at all. Then we've got Norman Wisdom's character Chick. Now, Norman Wisdom, who in later life was accused with some justification, it seems, with a lot of sexual harassment during his comedy career. He's never an actor I liked. He either he doesn't have a plate in this one. He plays it fairly straight. But as a rule, his comedies leave me cold. They're kind of... You get that sense from the actor that the person behind the character they're playing is very needy. And you very much get that from um, Norman Wisdom's character, Chick. He's cock-blocked by Raymond... He's shy with women, um, very good comedian, very good physical comedian, which indeed Norman Wisdom was. But he just needs to fucking grab himself by the collar and pull himself and put on his big boy pants in a sense. So he's not an admirable character anyway. Uh, he's supposed to be one of those characters that you feel sympathy for because he's unsuccessful with girls. But he doesn't have anywhere near the charisma or the talent you need to do that successfully. The only character on screen I could think who could really did that successfully was Cyrano de Bergerac with Jose Ferrer playing him. But Chick, again, maybe it's underwritten or maybe it's Norman Wisdom. Either way, the character doesn't work. Forrest Tucker, he of the giant cock in real life, playing the um, criminal, doesn't do anything more than he has to. He's catching a chick on this one. Harry Andrews is okay, playing the father, uh, very much playing against type. Religious fathers who look like Captain Ahab really aren't Harry Andrews' type. He's usually playing sergeant majors and um, spy bosses in movies. In real life, he was a very gentle and educated gay, gay guy, so there you go. Denholm Elliott, not so much. Ilya Gould, not so much. Bert La was quite charming as Professor Spatz. But the person I liked most in this was probably Joseph Wiseman as Minsky. Joseph Wiseman gives his character a kind of sly, interesting sense of humour. He plays it very, not tongue-in-cheek, but very kind of subtly funny. And his line deliveries are perfect. He may be the best one out of a lot of them. Just watching him play Minsky, particularly when he encounters Harry Andrews' character, the father of Rachel. Um, he, he kind of brings his A-game to this one and does a really lovely job. And so much so that we can forgive him for playing Yellowface in Dr. No. So through some very unlikely circumstances, Rachel gets to dance the midnight show at Minsky's just before it's about to close and basically shows her tits and invents striptease by dancing around, taking off her long gloves, taking off her clothing and accidentally showing her tits. That's the story. From the production side of things, here are the problems. The direction, there's a lot of out-of-focus cropped shots of various people to get reaction shots, um, particularly backstage. It really does draw attention to itself, and out-of-focus in a major motion picture just doesn't play well. I mean, yes, Frankenheimer did it with Sinatra's big scene in The Manchurian Candidate, but that was by accident. These ones, from the look of them and from the way it's done, 
The problem is that they didn't do much coverage. They didn't get other angles of particular scenes. They had a lot of time to do it, but they just didn't do it, so they had to kind of fake the footage a little bit. You, you get to do this a little bit in YouTube videos where you haven't quite got the footage you want or somebody, uh, when you're filming on a street, this happens to me, when you're filming on a street, sometimes somebody will walk in front of the camera and look at the camera. So what you do is, you know you need to get about seven or eight seconds of that. So what I do is I slow down the footage a little bit and go slow-mo and crop it just before the person walks into the frame of the camera. Everybody does it in various ways with any kind of photography or, or videography. Problem is that Friedkin's editor does this a lot. It was edited by a guy called Ralph Rosenblum, and I can't blame him for gig after editing the producers, which is edited beautifully. Uh, he actually wrote a book about his experience working on it, a book called When the Shooting Stops, the Cutting Begins. And he talked about having come off doing six months editing on the producers, and he thought the night they raided Minsky's would be an easy gig. And it took him nine months to cut the film. Here's what Rosenblum said. The first cut with, he saw the first cut of the film with um, Norman Lear and William Friedkin. It was disastrous. The chief drawback of Minsky's dramatic episodes was their predictability, he said. The film, the script was aimed for an old-fashioned charm, but with a few important exceptions, no new twist of sophistication was added to please a modern audience. When the cut was screened for David Picker, of executive VP of United Artists, he called it the worst first cut I've ever seen. However, since there was no set release day for the film, he told them to, whatever you want to do, go ahead, take your time and do it. Rosenblum found an um, old footage archive in New York City uh, and started selecting clips from the 1920s and spent a hell of a lot of time piecing them together with new footage to give a sense of the time and place at which the movie is set, to try to give it a bit more life. And he does it very well. There are bits of transition between old footage, new footage in black and white, where Rosenblum then pops it into colour, so suddenly you're seeing new footage. And it worked pretty well. Uh, it, it was kind of effective. The idea was to get do a movie about the 1920s with a kind of Richard Lester sensibility, the Richard Lester who did the Beatles movies in the early 1960s. They really wanted to get that kind of now-happening look with a movie about 1920s burlesque with a dinosaurian sexual politics in it. Freakin himself later admitted that he didn't know what he was doing. In 2008, he said this, Minsky's was way over my head. I didn't have a clue what to do. Norman Lear produced it, and he was a very difficult, tough guy to work with. But I learned a great deal from him, and I was struggling every day on the set. It wasn't a great script. It was a lot of shtick. But it would have been a lot better if I'd been more familiar with that world of burlesque in the 1920s, which I wasn't. So because, I think the, because of that, I think the film suffers to a great degree. And he said also, I have a few, if any, positive memories of it. But when I made the DVD recently, having not seen the film for 40 years, I thought it had some pleasant and amusing moments. He also said, there were many problems with it, but the biggest was my own ineptitude. I had researched the period, but I didn't know how to convey the right tone. At one point, when, during the production, William Franken asked Norman Lee to fire him, to which he said no. In a lot of ways, it was a very, very troubled production. And it shows, I mean, if you know anything about the editing, you can see those cropped edits. You can see the way they were trying to put it together based on the material they had. And with all credit to the editor, he did a good job with what he had. 
sometimes you you, know, you can't you can't gold plate a dog turd, but you can roll it in glitter. And that's pretty much what this movie is. I think one of the reasons why, apart from the fact that it may well have been showing in 1968 along Hollywood Boulevard, one of the reasons why Quentin Tarantino put The Night They Raided Minsky's in part of the mise-en-scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is probably because of that story of the editing, of putting it all together based on a piece of shit, not quite knowing what you're doing, and getting the movie out there. It made $3 million, so it got its bait back, but it still wasn't a happy film, and it wasn't a film that people remember. I mean, that's probably the the thing. People don't remember the night they rated Minsky's. You can get the movie poster for this really cheaply online because it's just one of those kind of forgotten 1960s films that the big studios were putting out. They didn't know how to handle a youth audience. They didn't know how to combat television. They really were struggling at that stage, and, and a number of them collapsed. So they were putting out as much product as they can. They were trying to re- put out movies for an audience that wasn't there anymore in a lot of ways. And The Night They Raided Minsky's is probably part of that phenomenon. Like when they did Dr. Doolittle and did a three-hour kids movie and kids wouldn't sit still long enough to watch a push-me-pull-you, a giant snail and a singing Richard Attenborough. Uh, they really didn't do markets research very well in those days. And there are problems with doing market research now, as our recent federal election will attest. But, um, yeah, the night they were, I'm kind of glad I saw these movies because when Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does drop, I can kind of go, okay, well, I know those movies and see whether there's any way in which the story of these two movies, Krakatoa East of Java and The Night They Raided Minsky's, relate at all to the themes that show up when we do get to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Maybe they don't. Maybe it was just part of the stage dressing and it was a little nod to cinephiles by Tarantino. But it'll be interesting to see that. And I am looking forward to that movie a hell of a lot. By the way, there was a stage adaptation as a musical in February 2009 in Los Angeles, a musical called Minsky's. It ran from the um, 6th of February 2009 to the 1st of March 2009. Uh, though the show's program noted it was based on the film The Book is Essentially a New Story. So the stage adaptation is a new story. It does make you wonder whether there was any nudity in the stage version. We probably never know. Anyway, that's about it for this time around. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to the Patreon supporters who keep the podcast going and whom I love without any reservation at all. Thanks to the rest of you as well, even if you're not dipping into your pockets. Um, yeah, I'll be back in a week with another Martian Driving podcast and in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. I've got a couple of ideas for the next one that might play out a little bit interestingly. So we'll see how we go anyway. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Take care of yourselves particularly. These are tough times in some ways. Watch some good movies, watch some bad movies, watch some good television. Please don't watch bad television. There is enough of that and we don't want to encourage it. And here, as usual, are the credits for the podcast. And after that, I'm going to play a mystery track of music, which should be kind of interesting. I'll catch you guys later. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast. Done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller. Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, 
Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H., our set photographer, Mark D., our extra, and David L., our extra, Kerry H., who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Let's talk it over. Let's get it straight. Don't let the situation escalate. You know there's always problems when a man is wrapped up in his arms. Don't you worry, baby, you can count on me to do my part. You keep on working, I'm looking round. Don't let your girlfriend put me down. You know it's tough these days for a young man to make a start. But don't you worry, baby, you can count on me to do my part. Just remember, darling, you can count on 